<clears throat> good morning. Scots? Okay. Scots, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege to be here with you guys. You guys have been extremely warm, generous, even though it's cold. I'm from Tampa, so this is very cold for me. But Oh, are you from Tampa? I heard a, I heard a woo. Okay. Um, I'm glad somebody else is. Uh, so it's such a privilege to be here with you guys at Covenant College. Uh, whenever I get a chance to speak to college students, I often forget that I didn't just graduate college, like I can forget that I'm not 20 years old anymore and all of a sudden this year I turned 30 and I still don't understand how that happened. Uh, but in many ways it feels like my college years were just yesterday. So I can forget sometimes that the challenges that you all face uh, are in many ways more difficult than the challenges I faced when I was in college back in my day. Uh, but there are some things that I don't forget about being in college. I don't forget how hard it was for me, especially as a freshman, as I dealt with loneliness in a new city, as I grappled with trying to understand who I was as a fairly new believer in Christ at that time. Uh, I don't forget wondering how I was supposed to live this thing out on campus and stumbling my way through things like sexual purity and seasons of depression that I couldn't quite articulate at that time. So what a privilege it is that you guys have to be able to have the professors and the staff and the support here that are pointing you to Christ. Not that it makes it uh, easier, but it is such a privilege uh, to have what you have. Um, I also don't forget my failed attempts at cooking, uh, managing money for the first time, and trying to find rides to the grocery store because I didn't have a car. Uh, I also don't forget, though, the joys of building new friendships the ability, amazing ability that some of you still have that I had, that I no longer have, to stay up till 3 a.m. talking about everything from theology to hip-hop to awkward situations that would tend to happen to me specifically and which cafeteria on campus was better, although we had more than one cafeteria. You guys have one, so you can't really argue about that. Um, but so all that to say, I get so excited as I think about speaking to you all today because I know that my college years had such a huge impact on my life trajectory and my walk with Christ. Well, nowadays, um, I'm a wife to John, a mother to our three-year-old daughter, JL Sophia. Some of you have seen her pictures already. Uh, my husband and I run our own creative agency, so he does all things web development and design and marketing, and I get to work with words all the time. So I write, sometimes copy edit, sometimes perform spoken word poetry. Um, so as I considered what to share with you all today, I thought, we could try to answer the question, what does creativity have to do with God? Now, I realize that not all of you here may think that you're creative in a traditional sense, but I want to challenge us to understand creativity in a broader sense. So creativity isn't just reserved for a select few. And creativity isn't specific to just the visual arts or even the written word. So if we understand creativity broadly as the ability to imagine or make new things, then creativity is just one aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. So my hope for us this morning is that whatever type of work you find yourselves doing now or in the future, that you'll do what you do with a greater sense of conviction and joy as we consider this question, what does creativity have to do with God? But how do we summarize something so grand in a matter of like 20 minutes or so? I mean, 
We could talk maybe about how God is the creator of all things and therefore the greatest creative of all time. Uh, We could see that just within the first sentence of the Bible, can't we? Or we could talk about how since God is the creator or author of all things, he rightly has authority over all things. So like authors have authority over their writing. And if you've ever been plagiarized before, you should feel that on a spiritual level. A creation is God's intellectual property. He is creator, therefore he is Lord. Therefore we want to think about how we're allowing God to govern and speak into our creative process and product. Or we could talk about how we see God's sovereign, orderly rule over all of creation in that very first chapter of the Bible. How he takes the chaos of the waters and brings order. And we could talk about how all of that might relate to the beauty of creative freedom within artistic boundaries in various disciplines because we're not the all-knowing, all-powerful, and sovereign God. Or we could talk about how we as God's image bearers take what God has made The materials of this world, whether it's plants or colors or language or dirt, and we make something out of it that when we do that, we're cultivating the earth or in essence, making culture. All of that, just from the first and second chapter of the Bible, right? We could talk about all of that stuff and how it relates to creativity, but I think it's important for us to first appreciate the impetus behind the very first creative act of God. In other words, what was the driving force behind all of that creative activity of God in that very first chapter of the Bible? And I think the answer is in a word that you don't actually find in the first chapter of the Bible. Love. I think that when we begin to grasp this, our core motivation driving our creativity and our work can begin to shift in a really beautiful way. So when I was pregnant... Uh, with our daughter about, yeah, three and a half, four years ago, I wrote this poem for her called Love Made. And this is, uh, it eventually turned into a children's book, which I'm still amazed about. Uh, But this poem is how I figured I would explain the creation story to my daughter and probably also how I'd explain to her where babies come from when she asks. She hasn't asked yet, so. Um, I want to share the first half of that poem with you all because I think understanding creation in this way has reframed creativity and work for me. Also, they, don't, they say, you know, you don't really understand a topic until you can explain it to a child. So what I want for all of you college students to do as you hear this retelling of the creation story is to just pretend that you're five-year-olds. Can you do that? Before God made the heavens and the earth, he lived in perfect joy. He delighted in himself, one forever existing perfect being. Father, Son, and Spirit, all one. There were no trees yet, no blue sky. There were no bees yet. There was no time. Just God in his glory, reflecting back beauty on himself. The father enjoying the son and the son right back. The spirit rejoicing in it all. No need for anything, no lack. The joy God had within himself was so great, so big, he let it spill over into what we call creation. 
You should have seen it. In six days, he spoke words that turned into life. First light, then sky, then earth with fruit trees, then the sun, moon, and stars, then birds flying, fish swimming, then all the animals that live and crawl on the ground, all that moo and all that growl. And all of it was good. With it all, God was pleased. But on the sixth day, God made something new something unique, something to rule over the rest, his greatest art piece, something so much like him, he called them his image, and with them his children. God was very pleased. So, do you know who he made on that sixth day? People like you and like me. Can you imagine the happiness God felt to see all that he made out of love, not out of need? The Father loving the Son and the Son right back, the Spirit rejoicing in it all, a perfect love union, forever intact. And now all that he made in six days was an overflow of that. God's happiness within himself bubbled over to make creation, sharing with them his joy, allowing them to know and praise him. You see, God is love, the Father, the Spirit, the Son, and love loved so much that love made us. Love caused creation. So that is just the first half of that poem. Thank you. Uh, that, that's just the first half of that poem, so you have to buy my book in order to see the last half. Uh, all of that to say this, though, love pre-existed creation. How? Because God is love, right? That's 1 John 4, 8. Our creator is by nature defined by love because he, was, he has always existed as a community of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I believe that this changes everything for us. You see, when God made human beings as the crown jewel of his creation, he intended for us to be enveloped into that sweet fellowship of eternal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Garden of Eden was where heaven intermingled with earth, where God walked with his people in fellowship and friendship. But when Adam and Eve sinned, there grew a great chasm between us and God, keeping us from that sweet fellowship of love. So throughout the Old Testament, God establishes these things called covenants, your college, uh, with people. And in short, covenant is relationship, deep, deep relationship. The more you learn about these covenants that God makes with his people, the more it just seems like language fails to communicate this insatiable desire that God has to be one with his people. Throughout the Bible is this promise that God often makes, I will be your God and you will be my people. But what happens in these covenants? We humans historically fail. We fall short of the glory that God intended for us, the glory of sweet and holy union with our creator. But then in steps Jesus, the son of God, the agent of creation, the word. He takes on human flesh by becoming a man and embodying the passionate pursuit of God to make us one with him all at the violent cost of his own life. 
Jesus established a new covenant in his blood, a covenant that would secure us in his love forever, a covenant that would allow for God the Holy Spirit to actually dwell in us as an outpouring of God's love into us, as Romans 5 says. An outpouring of God's love. Sounds a lot like creation, doesn't it? Well, that's because Jesus came to usher in a new creation. On the night before he was crucified, he prayed these words to God the Father. This is from John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Author Brennan Manning said that the word union was one of the most explosive words in his Christian vocabulary. And I think he's right. I mean, did you hear that union language in Jesus' prayer? The Son in the Father and we in the Son so that the love of the Father that the Son has eternally enjoyed might live in us. Well, friends, this means that love was not only the driving force of creation, but of redemption or recreation. Ephesians 2 puts it like this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Recreation driven by love. But here's the thing, it's where creativity comes in. It's like this this desire that God has for us to dwell in or abide in his love through union with him is really just too lofty. It's, It's too incredible, it's too sublime, it's too like up there. So throughout redemptive history, God gave us what? Stories, word pictures, architecture, poetry, drama, All of that just to help us begin to scratch the surface of this unending, incomprehensible, quite unbelievable love that God has chosen to set upon us. Well, can you see then how creativity is essential in helping us grasp our unbelievable union with God in Christ? It's no wonder then that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he graciously gave his people a multitude of gifts, as Ephesians talks about. So that we could serve each other with these multifaceted gifts and see as though in a mirror dimly the glorious mission accomplished by God, as Colossians puts it, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this all hopefully sounds wonderful and everything, but you might still be wondering, why in the world does this actually matter to me, though, and my creativity or my work? Well, it matters because if we don't appreciate the fact that we were created and are sustained by a God who is defined by love, or really rather, who defines love, then we will likely misuse our creativity or our academics or our work as a means of achieving worth or dominance in one way or another will likely assume that our worth is wrapped up in what we make or how productive we are or how popular or praised our work is. I personally struggle a lot with fear and comparison and discouragement in in my art and my gifts. I've spent a lot more money creating Christ-centered art than I have made money from it. 
Uh, and that's a part of worship for me, to, to serve others with my gifts for the glory of God. But if I'm honest, that can get really discouraging at times because my particular gifts and burdens aren't necessarily the ones that allow for me to make a significant financial contribution to my family. I don't have the large following of others I, or the same level of skill as others or the this or the that. And that fear of not measuring up has too often caused me to freeze or be overly concerned about recognition. So whether or not you're a poet or an artist, perhaps you can relate to that gnawing sense of not being enough in one way or another. If you're like me then, you need to know that no matter your family history, no matter your social status, no matter your particular brand of brokenness, you are love made because God, who is love, made you, his own special work of art. And please don't hear this as just fluffy jargon, okay? God didn't spare his own son for you. That's the length he went to in order to recreate you and wrap you into his love. You need to know yourself then as God's beloved, his delight, his joy. We need to know that we're already loved, already accepted, already delighted, and by the only one whose opinion actually matters, lest we use our art or our work or any other thing we do as a means to achieve what we already have in Christ. When we miss love, we miss the driving force behind God's creative and redemptive acts, and in doing so, we miss the true purpose of creativity and work. So if God, the creator, was driven by love to create and to redeem, then we must ask ourselves, what's driving me to create and to work? Is it profit? Is it maybe pleasing my parents? Is it fitting in? Is it fame? Is it a sense of accomplishment? Because at least I'm pretty good at this one thing. Or, or is it love? Love as defined by God. Love as modeled by Christ. Truthful, beautiful, sacrificial. This is the last thing I'll say. Uh, the Apostle Paul saw that many in the Corinthian church were driven by pride as they exercised their spiritual gifts. So he shows them a more excellent way in 1 Corinthians 13, the way of love. He describes what love is like, patient, kind, not envious, not boastful. It rejoices in the truth and so on. The love Paul describes sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? The God who was driven by love to create the universe and you. The God who was driven by love to recreate all things, even you. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these precious students today. Um, I ask that they would entrust to you their gifts, uh, their talents, their creativity, their next school project. And God, I ask that you would Help them center their identity on being loved by God. And as you fill them with your love, I ask that you would just let love be the driving force behind all that they do. I thank you for these students, and I ask, Lord, that they would wholly trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.